Let's have a further word of prayer, shall we? Loving Father, we bless you once again, Lord. And we never praise you and thank you enough. For, Lord, you do great and wonderful things, deeds. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, the overseer, the bishop of our souls, for the redemption of our souls is costly. It pleased Yahweh to bruise his own son that we might be redeemed. Lord, we bless you as we come together to look into your words, to be refreshed as it is written. He restores my soul. Bless us, Lord, as we come together. We pray that, Lord, will open the eyes of our understanding. Grant us, Lord, an increased measure of your spirit, that we may both fellowship and understand your words. May all the glory be to you. You are the head of the body, the master of the house. We trust, depend, and rely on you, Lord, to teach us your ways. In the name of Jesus, amen. The topic this morning is consequences of knowingly disobeying the word of God. The original title was Consequences of Knowingly Disobeying the Voice of God. But for reasons I explained previously, I prefer to use the word of God. But actually the word of God and the voice of God is the same. But because of the confusion these days, I prefer to use the word of God. Consequences of knowingly disobeying the word of God. Our main scripture will be in 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1 to 22. That 1 Kings 13, 1 to 22. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold a child Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And man's bone shall be burned on you. Verse 3. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out towards him, withered. 
so that he could not pull it back to himself. Verse 5. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes put out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Verse 7. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. Verse 9. For so it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Verse 11. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his son came and told him all the works that the man of God had done in the day, that day in Bethel, they also told their father the word which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his son had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah. Verse 13. Then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. Verse 14. And went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. Verse 17. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. Verse 18, he said to him, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. Verse 19, so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Verse 20, now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came back, who came from Judah saying, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your 
father. Now, I'm going to read 23 as well and 24 and maybe 25. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. Verse 24. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him and his corpse or carcass was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by, by, by the corpse. Verse 25. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. There are actually 34 verses. The purpose of this teaching is to warn ourselves against the danger, the risk and the danger of drifting away from God's inspired mission and calling. For those who are called by the Lord for the fulfillment of his end time ministry through the body of Christ, we need to maintain the kind of faith that overcomes the world. It's also a warning about immediate and long-term consequences of knowingly disobeying the Lord. It's a call for us to lead a responsible and resolute life in, through, and for Jesus Christ. Every action, every act has consequences in life. If we live a disorderly life, then we will reap consequences. All the pastors used to tell us, if you don't fear God, at least fear the consequences of sin. General overview of this chapter. From verse 1 to verse 6, it is a denunciation of the idolatrous altar. A man of God who was sent from Judah predicted that a child named Josiah would rise in Judah and would burn the idolatrous priest on the altar. This prophecy was fulfilled 330 years later. Find that in 2 Kings 13. That for next week, God willing. Verses 7 to 10, King Jeroboam failed to silence the man of God by threats. He will then use bribery instead. He will use craftiness, deceitfulness, seduction, and uncommon fellowship. Following the Lord's instructions, the man of God refused to eat, drink, and take the reward from the king. Verses 11 to 19, the man of God was sadly tricked, deceived by an old prophet who dwelt in Bethel. And the man of God disobeyed the word of God. It was integrity versus craftiness. 
the temple of God versus idols. The truth of God versus lie. Judah versus Bethel. Godliness versus lawlessness. See, I'm smiling because how was myself challenged when I was preparing all this and reading the Bible? So what's wrong with Judah, with, with Bethel? Bethel's mean the house of God, something like that. Bethel, you know, we all know that is a good place, don't we? What's wrong with Bethel? And why would I take the risk to say it's Judah versus Bethel? Well, am I being heretical? Well, isn't, isn't Bethel the place where Abraham, you know, you know, pitched his tent and sought the Lord and prayed, cried out to the Lord both when he went to Egypt, southward, and when he came back? What's wrong with Bethel? It's a good place anyway. Yeah. Let me repeat that. It's Judah versus Bethel. The Lord chose Jerusalem specifically as the place to establish his name. It's Jerusalem. Nowhere else. I know we think of uh, Abraham and Bethel, and many churches have that beautiful name, Bethel churches. It's very good. Because it's linked to Abraham's worshiping. Okay, let's just see something very quickly. In Genesis chapter 13, just jump to Genesis chapter 13 together very quickly. I didn't mean to read that, but it may be helpful. Okay. Genesis 13, first of all, Luke, verse 3. And he, that Abraham, and he went on, on his journey from south, from the south, as far as Bethel, to the place where his tents had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at the first place. So Abraham made an altar in Bethel. It makes sense that, you know, Jeroboam, you know, maybe he saw that's a good thing as well to do. But then I was a bit troubled. I said, what's the problem? What's the problem here? Look at verse 18, still Genesis 13, verse 18. Then Abraham moved his tent and went and dwelled by the terebinth tree of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and build an altar there to the Lord. How? There we are. So it's in Hebron. Judah. That's the place. In the first place, they become a lot of idolatries as well. In the first place, Abraham moved to Hebron. When I read that, I say, bingo. Good, I'm on the right path. I can continue now. So I can confidently say Judah versus Bethel. And we shall see why, God willing. Going back to our main scripture, 1 Kings 13. You can have false prophets. 
But you can't have false men of God. It's impossible to have false men of God. But false prophets may call themselves men of God, but they are not. Can you see the difference? The Bible refers to this prophet as a, an old. He's clearly a false prophet. But he is referring to the man of God as the man of God. False prophets are not men of God. Because a man of God is not a liar. A man of God is a man of God. So many false prophets everywhere calling them men of God. And drawing millions behind them. After them. They are not men of God. They are false prophets. God willing, we will study this topic in two parts. Part one is what we've just read, and part two is First Kings thirteen twenty-three to thirty-four. Next week, God willing. Part one today. The main topic is consequences of knowingly disobeying the word of God. Subtitle part one: immediate consequences of disobeying God. Now. Let's set things in the right context first, in the broader context of what, we, what is happening here. And this is a digression, a big one, for a while. In chapter, chapters 11 and 12, King Solomon loved many strange women. The daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, etc. The Lord had specifically forbidden this kind of marriages, lest these women should turn away God people's hearts after foreign gods. Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines who turned away his heart, and he went after. Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the abomination of the Moab, Moab, and Molech, Moloch, Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Now, Moab was, in a sense, Abraham's grandchild, Moab, and Ammon. Remember what happened with Lot and his daughters? Good. So out of that incest, they had Moab and Ammon, grandchildren of Abraham. Remember which next generation? It just takes one generation, two generations, to produce this. This becomes natural enemies of the people of God, of the Hebrews. Two generations. Only. Ashtoreth, Chemosh, Molech, Moloch, Milcom. But I became slightly bit more interested in one particular idol. 
Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth. Let me just say in passing before I forget that I've been asking myself, we know a little bit more about Ashtoreth, but what about Milcom? What about Molech today? Have they just disappeared, this idol? Have they influenced their worshipping, just disappeared? Just as I was praying yesterday, like a light in my spirit, what about all the crime and abortion on the city? Who is behind that? Molech. Ashtoreth is the queen of heaven to whom the Canaanites burned offering in Jeremiah 44, verse 17 to 18. Well, at this point, I look in the Bible, I look at the authentic narrative, and I look at the testimony of history. And I look at other academic sources like the Encyclopedia Britannica and compare, comes to the same conclusion. Praise the Lord for that. All real, genuine research confirm what is in the Bible, never contradiction. Where people say, oh yeah, because they are biblical archaeologists. No. Most of all those scientists are atheists. Most of them. But it confirms the Bible. But we don't need their view to trust the Bible. Because sometimes the postulates, the axiom, and the hypothesis they put are distorted. They found the outcome and the answer, and then they go back and they change the postulate to come to a different conclusion. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, Ashtoreth is also assimilated to the Egyptian deity Isis, to the Greek deities Aphrodite, Artemis, Athena, Demeter, Gaia, Hera, Hestia, Rhea, and the Roman deities Venus, Diana, Minerva, Ceres, Thera, Juno, Vesta, Ops. Same. Changing names according to cultures and places. Same. But this asterisk here is central to the inventing and spreading and influence of the mystery Babylon religion. This character here is central to seducing the people of God. Just quoted for you in Jeremiah. 44, 17 to 18, the Sidonian, the Canaanite were worshipping her. Even the Israelites joined in to make cake to the glory of this idol called Queen of Heaven, Aphrodite. Mystery Babylon, the great, from physical to spiritual. Well, in Genesis chapter 11, we have the physical Babylon. We have the erection of the Tower of Babel. We have it there in Genesis 11 by the mighty hunter, Nimrod. That's the physical Babylon. 
but the spread of its spiritual dimension transcends all the generations and times up until today. We are in the Genesis, the book of the beginning, and Revelation, Apocalypse, where the Bible speaks of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlot, and all the abominations of the earth. From physical Babylon to spiritual Babylon. It influence spread everywhere. Including amongst the people of God. Tragedy. Consequences of disobeying God. Immediate and long term consequences. It's everywhere. Yoga, etc. You name it. From physical to spiritual. In Revelation 17 from verse 1 to verse 6, it, the Bible speaks of the great harlots with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and who was full of names of blasphemy and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlot and of the abominations of the earth. Babylon the Great. This mystery Babylon the Great was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. But I want us to look at a very small, tiny detail. May help us. Turn to Revelation 18, I think it is. Revelation 18 and verse 11. I'm looking for one word. We'll get to that. Revelation 18, verse 11. And the merchant of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys her merchandise anymore. No one buys. No one transacts with her anymore. What are the transactions? What is, what is she buying and selling, Babylon the Great? Verse 13. There is a holy list from verse 12. They jump to verse 13. These are the things she's transacting. And cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariot, and this is what I'm looking for, Bodies and souls of men. That's what I'm looking for. Babylon the Great is in the business of selling souls of people to hell. That's part of her business. Selling illusion, false gospel to push people to hell. Yes, there was slavery. Bodies of humans. But the Bible says also souls. One day she will no longer do that. She's pushing billions of people to hell with a false gospel, with idolatry. Let's go back to our text. But in Revelation 18, verse 4, the Bible says, Come out of her, my people, lest you receive of her plagues. Babylon, the great. Come out of the Babylonian system. 
What happened at the Tower of Babel was the first attempt to come up with a one-world government. Rebellion. They set to start that. To give themselves a name. To build a tower that will reach heaven so that they can do astrology and explore stars in a demonic way. Babylonian system. Then and now. Solomon. Solomon, who was given everything by God. Everything. Wealth, wisdom, kingdom, everything. And the honor of building the temple. And foreigners were coming to him to seek wisdom. It's not enough. He will not heed the Lord's warning and will go after other gods. God willing, next week, we will focus a little bit on the consequences of what he did. Nimrod, in Genesis 11, Nimrod, who built the Tower of Babel, worshipped a pagan sun god, sun, S-U-N, sun god named Moloch. Moloch. He hunted humans. When the Bible says he was the first mighty hunt before God, people think that he was evangelizing for God. No. He was one of the most tyrants, wicked person. First mighty hunter of human being to sacrifice to his idol, to his God, Moloch. He hunted human beings to murder as sacrifices to his pagan god, Moloch. He married his own mother. Now, this is history. He married his own mother, Semiramis, in an act of incest. So the son became both the husband and the son of the mother, while she became the queen of Babylon. So this is the man who led the project of the Tower of Babel in the land of Shinar. After Nimrod's death, Semiramis invented a religion for people that would keep Nimrod's control over them, even after his death. She then gave birth to a son named Tammuz. Ezekiel 8.14. Whom she claimed was the reincarnation of Nimrod. So through the belief that Tammuz was Nimrod reincarnated, the queen was able to subdue the people of Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was the first attempt to a one-world government. The Tower of Babel was a tower built as a massive structure from which to consult the stars through the use of astrology and communicate with the sun. S-U-N, Baal. The Lord God intervened and confused the speech of the people 
of the earth and scatter them abroad. With the migration of the people coming out of Babylon, the sun S-U-N, worshipping religion of Babylon, was scattered throughout the earth. The names changed, but the religion remained the same. Since the languages now were confused, the names of Nimrod, Miramis, and Tammuz were changed and continued to change over the time based on culture and language. Although the names changed, the religion remained exactly the same, with the same purpose. Semiramis, however, became known as the queen of heaven among all cultures and worshipped as the primary head of this false religion. Even the children of Israel fell into the worship of Semiramis, the queen of heaven. See Jeremiah 44, 17 to 18. Together, Semiramis and Nimrod, and the bastard son of Semiramis named Tammuz, started this occult religion of sacrificing babies to Moloch. Moloch, Milcom. After the death of her son, S-O-N, slash husband, Nimrod, Samiramis began to formulate what we now know as the mystery religion of Babylon. In her new religion, she proclaimed that Nimrod had defeated death and was elevated himself above all that is called God, with small g, and literally became the sun, S-U-N. That's a lie. That's a fabrication from Semiramis. I told you it would be a big digression. She then instituted a day of worship dedicated to the sun, that is, sun day. Samiramis being the mother of Nimrod, in addition to his queen, then elevated herself up as the mother of God. She said, Nimrod had died, and went above the sun, he became the sun, he became worshipped, and because she was his mother, she was therefore the mother of God. And the queen of heaven. Semiramis later became pregnant, not wanting to destroy the image of her as the queen mother of God, she declared that Nimrod, the sun god, now called Baal, later known as Zeus by the Greeks, had impregnated her through the rays of the sun. She had given a virgin birth to her new son named Tammuz, who she claimed was the reincarnated Nimrod, as I said. The two, Semiramis and Tammuz, became worshipped as what we now know as Madonna and child, then later taught to people as Mary, mother of Jesus, 
as all the idols were simply renamed by different cultures. I'm nearly at the end of the digression. The religion, the religion of Semiramis. They claim that when she died, she became herself the moon and worship as the moon god. That ring a bell? Moon god. In fact, Nimrod was killed by his enemies and his body, his body parts were distributed all over his kingdom. Semiramis attempted to gather his body parts and accomplished to retrieve all parts except his private parts. And because she couldn't retrieve his private parts, they erected everywhere obelisks everywhere to symbolize Nimrod's private parts for idol worshipping. That's the form of it. Everywhere. Transported in Egypt, in Roman Empire, in Greece, everywhere you find that as a representation of that false religion. So these private parts of Nimrod are remembered everywhere by the constructions of obelisks everywhere. Now, the image of Isis in Egypt, an Egyptian deity who is actually the same queen of heaven, there is a very ancient image of her holding her baby called Horus, H-O-R-U-S. That image was renamed by the Roman emperor, Constantine, as Mary and baby Jesus in the third century. However, this image is none other than the original queen of heaven, named Semiramis. And she is holding her baby son, Tammuz. That is called syncretism. That's syncretism in Roman Empire. False religion. Mixing with a bit of Christianity to seduce the majority because of the prestige of the name of Jesus and what is done to make it less scary. Another one of her aliases is Easter. This is the true identity of Easter and her son, Nimrod, who was later supposed, supposedly incarnated as Tammuz, Ezekiel 8, 14, I've quoted that already, her name started out as Semiramis. I'm repeating so many times because it is important. But then it was changed in other cultures. Okay. We can skip the rest. 
Well, just a quick word about the baby, who is also known as Horus, Apollo, Sol, Krishna, Hercules, Mitra, and many other names. This image of Isis, queen of heaven with a baby, son, God, is the true identity of the Catholic Mary and Jesus. That's the reality. We can go back now to our text. Sorry for the digression. Let's go back to our main biblical text and also look at significant characters. We'll look a little bit more on these characters next week. Jeroboam, the man of God, Josiah, the old prophet, the corpse, the lion, the ass, or donkey. In the text we're looking at here, is the same new old tactics. Three snares. Number one, the attitude of men of God toward money. Jude referred to that as the error of Balaam for profits. The error of Balaam for profit, money. That's the first trap and snare against men of God. Secondly, deceitful tactics, the pursuit of fame and success models, old trickery and current trickery, the same. Second Corinthians 11 Verse 3, 13 to 15, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For certain himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose ends will be according to their works. You see, the man of God was able to resist the king, but he could not, dis- he could not discern the subtle deception of a prophet. Let me say this. We're all against all the blasphemy that is going on outside the church, we all against some of the things the government is allowing, which are against God. Everybody's against that. But we are tolerant of what false teachers are bringing in the church. Here you are. This man resists steadfastly the king. He said no, in a firm way. And he overcomes but he was overcome by a false prophet. These are very serious stuff, friends. These are very serious stuff. The government has done this. The government has done this. Look at what's happening in the church itself. And be careful with what you are watching. Be careful with your heroes. 
And what they are saying, no one is above the check. No one, including the Apostle Paul. All of us must be scrutinized. Whoever they are, I don't know. I've never known. Uh, I heard uh, a little bit about a man called Ravi Zachariah. I've never watched. I've never listened to, to him because I found him too intelligent, too sophisticated for me. So I heard people talking about. I've never really looked. He's passed away now, and I've been hearing few few things. I don't know if they're true or false. I don't know. Is it true? No, I'm not talking about the passing away. I'm talking about the things he did that are being revealed now. Anyone can confirm those things are true? No? Still speculation? But some people have confirmed that they are true. That they've uncovered some of very doubtful stuff he did. I cannot confirm. One day, Dave Hunt was asked, who is your favorite author or spiritual hero? He said, not until they've passed away. Because when they pass away, then we have the full body of their work and testimony and behavior. Then we can decide. Let's be careful with what we call spiritual giants and heroes. No one should be above check. When they pass away, when I pass away, when we pass away, then we can scrutinize fully without me having to come and rebuttal and justify myself. Deceitful tactics, pursuit of fame and success, trickery. In 1 Kings 13, 17 to 19, this is the man of God speaking. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. He said to him, that's the false prophet, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And the Bible says he was lying to him. Now, the man of God became impressed and ultimately deceived because of the fascinating packaging of the lie. The way it was presented to him. Do you know what? The key element here I too am a prophet and an angel spoke to me by the word of God. It's the angel that fascinated the man of God. It's the angel bits that led the man of God to disgrace. Not the word of God, the angel bits. I too am a prophet. I receive the same word of God by an angel. So far, the man of God has been talking about God himself. The Lord say, by the word of God, the Lord say, and now we have a different character. I too am a prophet. I receive the word of God by an angel. Well, the apostle Paul has just said that, you know, Satan himself disguised himself as an angel of light. Surely this could not have been 
the angel of God. He could not contradict the man of God emphatically repeated what was true, what the Lord had told him, told him. And now he's giving him, he's giving in because of the add-on. It's now a special revelation. It's a higher insight, higher revelation. Yeah, the Lord has spoken to you, but he's spoken to me too. And also, more importantly, he sent an angel. You didn't. And the man of God gave in. Prevailing cult of angels. Paul said, even if an angel preach another gospel, let him be accursed. Jude speaks of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Nothing new. We walk and live and are saved by the same gospel, the gospel of our salvation. Anything new is demonic. Whoever speaks it. Here is the man of God. Mightly used by God. He prayed to the Lord and the Lord restored the hand of the king. He prayed on the altar. It was split into two. And ashes came out of it. Mighty man of God. From altar to the street. Lack of vigilance and discernment. Consequences of knowingly disobeying God. How sad and tragic. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 to 7, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The man of God was seduced. It's now popular for people to talk about angels. I hear that quite a lot. I see leaflets all the places. Angels are very popular this day. How do we know they are of God? By the works we see in those prophets, it cannot be from God because it contradicts the word of God. Clearly, the Lord had spoken to the man of God. Clearly, do not eat bread, do not drink, do not return by that way. Why the same God will send an angel to say something different? Why? For instance, God say he hates divorce. Then you have pastors who have divorced and remarried several times. And they've changed the meaning of the word of God. They've come up with something new. And the churches are full of people. What? It's so clear. God hates divorce. End of the story. They've divorced and remarried so many times. They're still popular. With so many fanatics who are ready to die for them. You can't blaspheme Jesus, it doesn't matter. Don't touch their heroes. You're in trouble.
consequences of disobeying God knowingly. So we can see a direct contradiction between the word of God and the word allegedly brought by an angel presented as being a greater revelation. A mighty man of God is seduced now, is impressed by a new success model, a new growth theory, new church growth theory. How to grow a church, how to become successful is impressed now. The word of God means nothing to him. Now is the word of the angel. See how he finishes? From the altar to the streets. Man of God. Let's be careful, friends. Man of God. On the streets. Die at the disposal of a lion and people. And ultimately, we shall see that next week, God willing, at the disposal of the false prophet. Who does with the corpse what he wants? Actually, he buried it in his own tomb. And he himself is buried against, beside the man of God's tomb. The man of God is punished. He will not lie. He will not lie with his fathers in Judah. He's now in idolatrous places now. Immediate and long-term consequences of disobeying. The word of God is given to the man of God. It was very clear. We can pass that. God punishes stubbornness, rebellion, and disobedience. They are punishable. In fact, in Proverbs 29, verse 1, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy, says the Bible. If God is speaking to us to live a double life, live as abandoning a double life, if we're playing with fire, if we're tempting and testing God, it's not a good news for us. It's not a good news for us. It's enough to sit on the fence. It's time to engage with the Lord and live for him resolutely, resolutely and forever if we love him. We have to be very, very careful. There's no association between the temple and idols, Christ and Belial, no. It's Christ in, through, and for him. Let me read that again. Proverbs 29, verse 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Well, God is God. God is in heaven. God is not fabricated and created in our minds. We can create our own God, justify ourselves, give ourselves all sorts of excuses, but the Lord God expects us to walk by this. No games to be played with God. No games. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first all that which I also received, that Christ died 
for our sins according to scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. End of the story. The gospel by which we are saved. No other way. Only by grace can we enter. So number one, attitude toward riches, material, possessions. Number two, The trickery, I think it was, yes, deceitfulness, deceitful. Number three, lack of discernment. The man of God, even at that level of elevation, lacked wisdom. I remember when we were younger, pastors told us, if Paul was running, what should we do? Flying? If Paul say, I'm still running, what should we do? Telling the children yesterday that Caleb reminded his testimony when he was 85. Because when he was sent to spy in the promised land, he was 40, 45 years later. He says, I'm still strong as in the day when we were sent and we came back. And he said, I can still go and fight. And I told my children that you cannot even stand two, 20 minutes. We start praying after 20 minutes, a quarter of the assembly. I'm talking about my family. They're not here. There's only one. That's good. And she was not there. She's at university. She's not concerned. Three quarters of the family go to toilet, go to drink water, go to yawn, go to do this. After 15 minutes. <laughs> they can't even kneel down. I say to them, look at in our church, we have senior people who never miss a prayer meeting. And you, younger people, you're busy on your tablets. When things go wrong, then you cry out to the Lord. I can promise you that in that day, the Lord will be busy updating Moses' tablet as well. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You can smile. It's the joy of the Lord. Paul genuinely was genuinely concerned about what would happen to the church of Ephesus after his departure. You read that in Acts 20, verse 28. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16, the Apostle Paul reveals God's purpose for giving ministries to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. All must be done for the edification of the church, godly edification. I need to ask myself, are my actions working toward edifying the church or destroying the church? Everyone must answer for himself. The ministries are given to bring the saints to spiritual maturity and to prevent them from being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitfulness plotting to avoid what happened to the man of God. That's why we are here. That's why you have a pastor, you have elders, you have deacons, you have everybody and other pastors, all the good teachers all over the place writing to edify the body of Christ. 2 Peter 1.16 says, We did not follow cunningly devised fable when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 1 Kings 13.16-17, I cannot return with you because the word of God says so. That's a good start, starting point. And then the false prophet adds to that. 
Yes, God said, but the angels. Can you recognize that pattern here? Do you remember the lie in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say it? Same old and current lie. A genuine man of God, deceived by an old prophet, who wanted to see the perpetuation of idolatry in Israel. That was the tragedy. He was a very experiment. Old prophet. In age, maybe. Old prophet in the level of trickery is the last king's resort to resolve that embarrassment from that genuine man of God. He's full of tricks. This is the potential disqualification Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 9.27. This is the body being destroyed in order for the soul to be saved. In 1 Kings 13, 7-20, the man of God was offered the king's gratification, all kind of gratification, which eventually led to his disgrace and destruction. Ministers need to shepherd the flock, willing, the flock willingly and not for dishonest gain. They need to remember that they will receive a glorious reward when the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns. Like Samson, the man of God was not firm in his resolution to obey God. Yet we are commanded to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We are also commanded to resist him with a steadfast faith. In partial conclusion, let's consider what Samuel said to Saul. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fats of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. The consequences of knowingly disobeying the Lord God. God bless you. Let's pray. Loving Father, we bless your name, Lord. We reveal, we receive your word. The desire of our heart, Lord, is to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to live for him, to be equipped to grow unto maturity for the edifying of the church and the perfecting of the saints. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had together. We commit each one of us to your divine care. And we pray, Lord, that your hand will be upon each and every one of us. And as we depart from this place, may your Holy Spirit be with us all. May we all abound, be maintained, and grow in your grace. That none of us will be snatched, will be tricked and deceived. Oh, good and great, true shepherd. Bishop and overseer of our souls, we look to you, Lord, for our security. We give you thanks and praise and all the glory unto you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.